Please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We begin the seven letters to the churches tonight. I'm really excited. It's one of my favorite parts of Revelation, one of the most encouraging and challenging sections, I think, in many ways. So I'm excited to get into these over these next seven weeks with all of you. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let's hear the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word, for the way that your word works in us by your Holy Spirit to change us into the likeness of your Son. We pray, Father, that you would do that here tonight, that we would not be hearers only, but doers of your word. We would delight in your word, and we would graciously and thankfully receive rebuke when your spirit convicts our hearts and lord that we would joyfully serve you and repent before you and father we're so grateful for your son so grateful that christ has done everything we needed to be right with you pray that he would be exalted as we spend time together this evening in jesus name amen i want to start off with a question pretty simple one what do you hope sovereign grace looks like in the future What do you hope this church looks like? Let's just say 25 years into the future. If the Lord was kind enough to give us some kind of vision or picture of what the church would look like when all these kids were grown up, when all of us were old and gray, or grayer, shouldn't look over there, okay? When all of us are old and gray, what do you hope sovereign grace looks like? I know some are probably thinking, well, I hope we at least have a building by then. I'm with you. I hope it doesn't take 25 years for that to happen. The Lord knows. But what if in 25 years, Sovereign Grace was the church with sound doctrine, the church that loved the truth, fought for the truth, sacrificed greatly for the truth, no matter what it cost, where all the kids were catechized and well-trained and they knew the word, where the adults too knew their Bibles, they read good books, they knew church history, and they worked terribly hard to pass the faith on to the next generation. What if in 25 years, Sovereign Grace was known as the church with godly leaders, the church that never suffered some crazy scandal because of sins in the leadership or foolish decision, the church where faithful pastors and missionaries were trained up and sent out all over the world to start new churches, to help those churches that are weak and struggling, to serve the world around us? What if Sovereign Grace was known in 25 years as the church with patient endurance? sure we're all feeling the pressure today from the world as it increases over the years what if sovereign grace always stood firm what if when other churches caved and gave in to sin sovereign grace trusted the lord 
even when it meant they lost jobs or possessions or even their own family members. They patiently and joyfully endured terrible suffering because they knew they had a greater inheritance. Would you be encouraged if Sovereign Grace looked like that in 25 years? I would be. I would be overjoyed if that's what Sovereign Grace looked like. It would be an answer to so many of my prayers. It may come as a shock then to hear that our Lord threatens to wipe out a church in Ephesus just like this. A church with godly leaders, a church with sound theology, and a church with patient endurance. And Jesus says, I'm going to wipe that church out because they lost their first love. Some of us might be tempted to think, come on, really? That? That's all it takes? Really? That church has done so many good things. Look at all that God has done there. I can think of a lot of other churches that should have been wiped out long before. Why is this losing your first love such a big deal? Well, that's what this letter to the church in Ephesus is going to teach us tonight. We'll talk about what it looks like to lose our first love and be called to repent and trust the Lord in that. Now, before I get into the actual letter, the details of the letter, let me give you a little bit of an introduction to these letters. Since this is our first week in these letters and we'll have seven weeks to come, I want to just tell you about what these letters are about so you can kind of navigate them as we go through them each and every week. To seven very real churches. They're not metaphorical churches, right? We saw them listed out in chapter one. Towards the end of the chapter, these are churches we're probably used to hearing about in Acts, in some of Paul's letters, and each of these very real churches has their own struggles, don't they? We'll see many of those in these letters, and they have their own strengths and their own weaknesses. But here's the thing we need to remember. These very real churches are also representative churches as well. They represent different types of Christian churches throughout history. And actually, that's one of the reasons why there's only seven of them. You know there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor, many more. Jesus could have written eight letters or ten letters or 50 letters or whatever it might have been. Why did he write seven? Well, we've been learning in Genesis why, haven't we? Seven is that number of completeness, that number of wholeness. So what's being said here is this is kind of a complete picture of the struggles and the strengths of what the church will deal with throughout history. And it's also why each church is called to listen to each other's letters. Did you know that? They're representing all the churches. Look at verse 7 with me. Probably heard this when we read through it. This is in every single letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not one church, right? But all the churches. So even though these are intended for specific churches, God wants us to look into each of these letters almost as a mirror to ourselves. To look into these letters to see our own strengths, our own weaknesses, to be encouraged and even rebuked along with them. To what end? Well, that we might persevere in a world that's growing more and more hostile to Christianity. Maybe a shocker to you, but that's not just something that's happening today. It's happened throughout church history, and these churches were struggling with that as well. Well, believe it or not, churches haven't changed much in 2,000 years, have they? Human nature hasn't changed in 2,000 years. So we still have rich, apathetic churches like Laodicea, small, persecuted churches like Philadelphia, even big, fancy, hollow churches like Sardis, and the list will go on and on. Now, that doesn't mean as we read these letters that it's our job to identify every church in town. And say, oh, there's Sardis right there. There's Philadelphia. Oh, there's Laodicea. That's why they're such a mess. That may be true. They may need to hear this just as much as we do. But first and foremost, we need to hear this. Every single one of us. 
So I encourage you, don't listen to these sermons for someone else, for some other church. Don't try to pass it along and think, oh man, they really need to hear this. See yourself in these texts. And don't zero in just on one church. Don't just hear tonight, oh wow, I am Ephesus. This sovereign grace is Ephesus, so I can ignore all the other letters. We might be Ephesus today, but turn into Sardis tomorrow. Or you might be at a church like Ephesus, and you might think like a Laodicean. And so all that to say, we need to attend to these letters. We need to ask God to teach us what he says to each of these churches and to repent and to trust the Lord through these letters. So what is being said here to the church in Ephesus? This is what I don't want you to miss today. The church in Ephesus, this letter was written to them so that they would realize that a loving witness is essential for Christ's church. A loving witness is essential for Christ's church. And I want to break the passage up into three parts. There are three C's to make them a little easy to remember. So we'll see, first of all, that Jesus commends the church. He commends the church in verses 1 through 3. And then secondly, he condemns the church in verse 4. And then lastly, Jesus corrects the church in verses 5 through 7. So first, let's look at verse 1 as Jesus commends the Ephesian church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand. Well, who's that? That's Jesus, isn't it? We learned that from the last chapter. Jesus is the one that holds these seven stars or seven angels in his right hand. And that kind of begs the question, well, who are these seven angels? It's actually saying here, write the letter to the angel of the Ephesian church. It may sound really weird to us. Well, there are some that think that those must be humans. Angel can also mean messenger, so it's the person that takes the letter to the church. Or maybe the pastor who delivers this message to the church. I don't think that's what's going on here. Namely, because John never uses this word to describe any human beings. He doesn't in any of his writings. He actually uses it every single time to describe a heavenly creature. And that's common in apocalyptic literature to have angels be the ones that are protecting that are the ones that are messengers and the communicators. We see that all through the book of Daniel, don't we? Especially in Daniel 10 and Daniel 12. So I believe that's what's going on here. And there's way more to say about that. If you want to hear more, I'll be glad to talk to you about that. But I don't want you to miss the point. The point isn't who the angels are necessarily. It's who holds the angels. These angels, these messengers of the church, they're being held by Jesus. Jesus is the one caring for the church, protecting the church. He's the one in charge even when it looks like a mess. And not only that, look at the end of verse 1. He's the one that walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember last week, the lampstands are the church. And we have this picture of Jesus as the great high priest. The priest would attend to the lampstands, make sure it was always lit and cared for. And Jesus is doing the same thing. He's caring for the church. He's praying for the church. He's sanctifying the church through all their troubles. That's why he says, by the way, too, over and over in these letters, I know, I know, I know your deeds, I know your sufferings. Look at verse 2. I even know your works. Well, why does Jesus know? Well, in one sense, he's God. He knows. He knows all things. But especially in this context, he knows because he's there. He's near. We learned last week, it's not just near to provide, to care. It's also near to judge. We need to remember that, too, because we can be very tempted to misunderstand these rebukes, to see these rebukes as, as coming from some troll on Facebook or whatever it would be, right, that just wants to hurt somebody. That's not who these rebukes are coming from. They're coming from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave his life for us, who knows us intimately. He's right there with us in the struggle. And he knows exactly what we need, just as he did for the Ephesian church way back then. So how does Jesus commend them? Let's look at verse 2. What does Jesus say to commend them? I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. What an incredible commendation for this church. As you can probably tell, it was not easy to be a Christian in Ephesus. If you know anything about Ephesus, Ephesus was it was truly a great city. It was a huge city. It had at least 250,000 people. Just to give you an estimate, that's bigger than Modesto, bigger than San Bernardino. Really big city in that time. It was a coastal city, so there were trade routes coming through. So it meant that this was a hub for business and entertainment and for culture. In so many ways, it's almost like the L.A. or the San Francisco of the ancient world in some ways. Don't take that metaphor too far. Right? You get my point, though. That's what Ephesus was. But even though it was a great city in the empire, it was a deeply idolatrous city. They prided themselves that they were a place of tolerance and religious pluralism. They were a place where you could worship any god you wanted to. Sound familiar? That was Ephesus. You could worship the Roman emperor. You could worship at the great temple of Artemis, temple of Diana, this huge temple bigger than a football field, considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. And in Acts 19, we get a glimpse of how idolatrous they were. You don't have to turn there. Let me just explain the story. You might remember this story. When Paul goes into Acts 19 to preach the gospel with his team, they preach the gospel, and there's this huge revival. Huge revival, and people are bringing out their idols. They're bringing out their magic books, and they just have this giant bonfire, just huge, thousands of dollars. And as they're bringing this out and people are repenting, the people that make those idols start freaking out and thinking that's our livelihood. And they start a riot to try to take out the churches. That's how ingrained idolatry was in this town. It was at the very center of who they were. Yet in spite of all that, despite all that, this was an incredible church. Incredible church in so many ways. It was started by Paul, pastored by Apollos, by Timothy later on. All those pastoral epistles to Timothy, that was related to Ephesus. Even John himself, the one who wrote this letter, was a minister there for a time. And this church took the word of God seriously. They took Paul's word seriously. Paul wrote to them in Acts 20, and then 1 Timothy 4, Paul says this, Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Ephesus took theology and doctrine deadly seriously. They knew they were going to live in a culture where they weren't going to be liked. They weren't going to be popular, but they didn't care. They wanted to honor the Lord and be faithful to the word that was given to them. And this made them an incredibly tough church. Look at verse 3. We see their endurance here. I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus says, I know you're fighting. I know you're fighting. I know you're struggling. You don't bear up with false teachers, but you do bear up with much suffering. You're fighting so hard and you're not growing weary. You're faithful. You're rock solid. You're steadfast. Ignatius, one of the church fathers, later says about the Ephesians, he says, no heresy or false teaching or sect could even gain an audience with the Ephesians. They wouldn't even entertain it. That's how solid they were theologically. But they weren't just solid theologically or doctrinally. They were solid morally too. Look down to verse 6. Verse 6, there's this little kind of offhanded comment it feels like. Jesus says, yet this you have. 
You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We almost know nothing about the Nicolaitans. We find out a little bit more about them in another letter. Best we can tell is that they were the people leading the church into sexual sin and idolatry. They were probably the people that were anti-law, antinomian in the sense that, you know what? You're forgiven in Christ. Do what you want. Accommodate the culture. Do what feels good. Romans 6, sin all the more that grace may abound. That's what they believed. That's what they taught. And Jesus says, you hate that. And that's good because I hate it too. That's something you don't hear every day. Almost never hear that about churches in town. See that church over there? They're really good haters. Really intolerant in the best possible way. That church, they hate what God hates. And Jesus says, that's a really good thing. Keep it up. This church in Ephesus was incredible. So much going for it. Sound doctrine, godly leaders, faithful endurance. And on the outside, they looked like a strong, faithful church. But there was a cancer growing within, which went unnoticed to most people around them, except for the one who was walking among them, the one who knew their hearts, the one who could diagnose exactly what their issue is, and that's Jesus. And so let's see how Jesus condemns them. He commends them for what he sees, but then he also condemns them. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned or lost the love you had at first. What exactly is he talking about here? What kind of love have they lost? Is this some kind of feeling? Some people think this is more of a passion, a zeal. You know when you come to faith in Christ and you're all excited, you're sharing your faith, and you're overjoyed by what you've been giving, and so you have this passion, and eventually over time, that seems to fade. Is Jesus saying, you have to get back that feeling? The song has been in my head all week, you've lost that loving feeling, right? Is that what Jesus is saying? You need to rekindle the romance with God? No, it's not even close. One, that idea of love equals feelings is very foreign to the Bible, and it really doesn't fit with the next verse. Look at the next verse. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Not feel the feelings you did at first, but do the works. There's something that they're lacking that they're not doing, so it can't be this feeling. Well, then what is it? Well, some people think, well, it's a vertical love. It's love for God. It's love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in one sense, that's true in that it is our first love. It's the fountain of our love, the source of all our love. We love because he first loved us. John himself wrote that. But I don't think that's what's really going on here. And the reason why, because in the Old Testament, when God's people lost that vertical love, when they lost their love for God, what did it look like? When they walked away from the Lord, they walked away to idols, didn't they? To spiritual adultery over and over again. We see that throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah 2 is a great place to see that summarized. That wasn't happening in Ephesus. They had every chance to run to any idol you can possibly think of, but they didn't. They fought idolatry. So what was the issue then? I think a good way to summarize it is they didn't have a problem with the first great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The disconnect, the problem happened in the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Somewhere along the line, there was this disconnect between loving God and loving people. They weren't strained morally. They weren't strained in doctrine. But their affections for God and for other peoples were going away. They hated what God hated, which is a great thing, a commendable thing. But they did not love what God loved. 
They didn't love the world, the lost. They didn't love the bride, the church. Over time, they became, as some say, the frozen chosen. (laughs) They turned in on themselves. Their love for God grew cold, and it was showing up in their lack of love for other people. We know how this looks. We don't have to compromise with the world to not engage it. Right? We can put all of our efforts into defending the good deposit, defending the church against the world, and not getting the church out into the world. We can put all our effort into winning an argument rather than winning souls to Christ and preaching the word to the lost. Care more about being right than that the righteous one is glorified by the way we love people. That was the Ephesian problem. And that's why Jesus threatened to take them out. Look at verse 5 again. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And listen to this. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember, these are the words of the one who walks among the lampstands. It's essentially like Jesus saying, I'm right there among the lampstands and I'm not seeing much light. I'm not seeing the light of my glory and love being shown to the world. I taught you, Matthew 5, to let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You've got really good at defending the light, but you're not shining the light for the world to see. Your loving witness is fading. And as that goes out, you're no use as a church. You think about it. A lamp that doesn't shine light is useless. A church with no loving witness is not a church. Brothers and sisters, good doctrine, right thinking, patient endurance is not enough. They are good and they should be commended, but they are not the end of our faith. We were saved to glorify God and to love God and love the world. We are called to storm the gates of hell, to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, to love people, care for people, sacrifice for people, love as Jesus did. And the Ephesians forgot that. And we can too. You know, as I was thinking this week and praying, this is a real danger for a church like ours. A church that loves doctrine. We can get very satisfied at the end of the day to have nice comfortable chairs, to go to church, to have some time with friends, to hear something that's intellectually stimulating. Something that we can put in our portfolio and bring out later when we want to win an argument. And then walk home like we've done our job. And not allow the word to transform us. Not ask God to transform us so that we love other people. Our study of scripture, our doctrine has to lead to love. Or there's a serious problem. So how do we fix it? What does Jesus say is the correction for the Ephesian church or a church like Ephesus? Let's look at verse 5 one more time. We've seen the commendation, the condemnation. Let's see Jesus' correction in verse 5. Remember, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. I love this verse. This was in my head all week. I find it so encouraging that Jesus doesn't correct them by minimizing their strengths. He doesn't say, look, you care too much about doctrine. You care too much about righteous living. You spend so much time fighting lies And correcting false doctrine, that's why you're not loving people. What you need to do then is lighten up on the doctrine. Lighten up on righteous living and then you'll be able to love people well. Jesus doesn't do that. A lot of churches do. A lot of Christians do. Jesus doesn't do that at all. 
He doesn't treat doctrine and love as two opposing forces. Like you have to take a little bit away from doctrine so that you can love people. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Instead, the picture here with these three R's is almost like you have a race that's unfinished. You need to pick up where you left off. Look at the first part of the verse. Remember, remember where you got off track. Remember where you stopped running the race. Remember what it was like to love people, to delight in their salvation and sharing the gospel, loving the church, and then repent, repent, turn back to the one who did this perfectly. That's our only hope, brothers and sisters. If we are like the church in Ephesus, our only hope is to look to Christ, the one who loved perfectly in our place, did everything that we've failed to do, went to the cross and loved us to death and rose from the dead, conquering sin and death so that we might walk in newness of life. Remember what he's done. Look to him in faith. And then what's the last part? Finish the race. Remember the works you did at first? Do those works. Follow him. Once you see Jesus as your substitute and your righteousness, then you can see him as your example. Then you can walk in faith and trust him and love those around us. That's what the Ephesian church is being called to. That's what we are called to. And what's the result of this? Look at the last verse, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to this. To the one who conquers... The one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Brothers and sisters, this shows us that losing our first love is a matter of salvation. Love is essential to the church. It's essential to the Christian. There is no eternal life apart from love. If loveless doctrine is all we have at the end of the day, we may not be saved. We may not be right with God because Jesus himself says, you'll know them by their fruits. John says, 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Those that know God, that are being sanctified by Christ, love doctrine and love people. They love the world. We don't do this perfectly, by the way. We don't overcome here by our own works, by our own love. We overcome with persevering faith in Jesus, fixing our gaze upon him, the one who did this perfectly in our place, asking the Holy Spirit to transform us. And as we bask in the glory of God, we draw near to God in worship. God transforms us so that we love people earnestly, wholeheartedly, as Jesus loved. And let's pray that God would do that among us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Father, help us our own weaknesses, our own sin. Help us to see if we have a lack of love for the world around us and for your church. Pray that we would never be satisfied at the end of the day with knowing things about you or winning arguments or just theology as an end in itself, Lord, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind, by the Spirit of God, that we would be transformed to preach the gospel, to care for those around us, to love as you've called us to. We can't do that apart from you, Lord, so I pray that you would do it among us. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.